Welcome to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. And so in that special focus on communion about three Sundays ago, uh, we also asked questions like, so what do you think about? when we are sharing communion with one another. Hopefully your mind is in the right place. What do you think about when we share communion with one another? Obviously we think about uh, the life and the death of Jesus, but what other moments do you remember from the life of Jesus as we share communion with one another? Uh, Some of you are aware of the fact that on other occasions I've asked a question like, so if you could pick one moment from the life and the ministry of Jesus and you could be present watching that unfold, what moment would you pick? And some of you have heard me respond every time I respond to that question. Some of you have heard me respond by saying, I would want to be there in Mark chapter 5 when Jesus drives out the legion of demons and the guy on the other side of the Sea of Galilee because it is such a phenomenal story. But specifically related to communion, what do you remember? What moments in the life of Jesus? We challenged you on that Sunday three weeks ago uh, to spend some time with family or friends in the days following that, to share communion with one another, to engage in answering some of those questions. And so when Debbie and I sat down and shared communion and dealt with those questions, she immediately said, I think about Jesus and children. Her love for children, her love for ministry to children. What comes to your mind when you think about the life and the ministry of Jesus? In fact, I would like for us to especially ask that question today as we continue this focus from 1 Thessalonians that we're calling the three-legged church that grows out of Paul's opening prayer of thanksgiving. And so listen again to these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Three foundational themes in that prayer, faith and love and hope. Their deep faith in God, their love for God and for one another, and their hope in the future because of the resurrection. Three themes that play out in this little five-chapter epistle. It seems that Paul is saying that at the heart of a church that is healthy is an emphasis on faith and love and hope. Well, today our focus is on love, your labor prompted by love. And so even more specifically, when you think about love, what moments from the life of Jesus come to your mind? Well, let me share the two moments that come to mind. Matthew chapter 22, one of those familiar texts in the Gospels. Matthew tells us, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them who was an expert in the law tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I could stop right there and preach for the rest of the day. But that's one of those moments that comes to mind when I think about love. 
the second one is in John chapter 13. It is the context where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And you may recall that in some of our translations, the opening verse in that chapter tells us that Jesus wanted to show the disciples the full extent of his love. And so he washes their feet, and after he washes their feet, he will say to them, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I could stop there and preach all day as well. Jesus doesn't say, the world will know that you are my disciples if you show up at church every Sunday. Jesus doesn't say the world will know that you're my disciples if you have a right sign on front of the church building, if you do worship right, if you do this right. Jesus says the world will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, as we walk through this series on 1 Thessalonians, we're obviously not going to be able to spend time with every paragraph in that book. And so today we come to chapter 4. And when we come to chapter 4, we are over halfway through this letter, and yet there are so many significant thoughts in this reading. And so I want you to listen. Twelve verses, chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. In fact, I'm going to do a good bit of reading today, letting Scripture wash over us as we talk about love. Paul says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. One of those moments, again, where you want to hit the pause button and say, okay, what does a life look like that pleases God? He says, we've instructed you how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you are living. And I've got to remind you, this is a young church, maybe eight months, maybe nine months old, and yet Paul commends them because they are living in a way that pleases God, that honors God. Now we ask you and we urge you. See how many times I'm hitting, I'm hitting the pause button? We ask you and we urge you. It's a word that's used only about 15 times in the entire New Testament. And as one of my professors used to put it, when that word shows up, you better sit up and pay attention because it is mainstream stuff. Paul says, we urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ, to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority, of the, Lord's Je uh, the, uh, the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. It's the Greek word for holy, that you should be sanctified, that you should be made holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but rejects God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Now about, second time he's used that phrase, now about your love for one another. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. And yet we urge you, that word that shows up a second time in this paragraph, we urge 
you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you'll not be dependent on anybody. A life that pleases God. And for Paul, in this paragraph, it is a two-pronged approach. There is an emphasis on holy living, and there is an emphasis on love. Paul says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should be made holy, that you should live a holy life. Now, you're probably quite aware of the fact that there are several words that are used in the New Testament that describe our salvation, our relationship with God. Big, beautiful words like reconciliation and justification and sanctification. All of those that describe that beautiful relationship and yet all of them having particular nuances in their definition. And so justification, the fact that God declares us just, that He declares us righteous, that He declares us forgiven in His sight. Through the cross of Jesus, we are justified. We are also sanctified. We are declared holy. But most often when this idea of sanctification shows up in the New Testament, it is also describing that lifelong process where we become more and more holy with each passing day. Some of you have heard me ask the question this way. If you are holy, would you raise your hand? And see, if you are a believer, your hand ought to go up because God has declared you holy. But if I were to ask you, how many of you live absolutely holy lives every day? We struggle with that because we know our imperfections. Thus, the tension that is there in the use of that word. It is Scripture declaring, you are holy, now live like it. Or as God would put it, beginning back in the, in the book of Leviticus, where he describes himself as a holy God, he would say, I've called you to be my holy people, now be holy. And so in this paragraph in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, a life that pleases God is a life that is all about holiness, but in very particular ways in this paragraph, he talks about sexual holiness. Paul says, you in Thessalonica live in a pagan city. It is a thriving cosmopolitan city, but it is a city where all sorts of sexual immorality evidently exists. Some of the pagan religions where sexual immorality would have even been practiced there. We know some of the culture of Corinth, for instance, maybe some of the same things going on in Thessalonica, but even beyond that, a pretty pagan culture where sexual immorality is rampant. And Paul challenges these believers to discipline their bodies, to control their bodies, so that they will be holy and honorable before God, not pursuing passionate lust like the pagans do. And so again, I want to hit the pause button and say, well, thank God we don't live in a pagan culture. Thank God we don't have the kind of sexual temptations they evidently had in that first century world. Reality is we live in a very pagan culture as well. And the sexual challenges of life are all around us. And so words that we need to hear as well. And by the way, I would suggest it is more than just going through a litany of sexual sins. I think it is stepping back and recovering a true biblical theology of sex. And that's an important conversation for the church to have. 
and an important conversation for us to continue to have as we talk about a holy life. But I want us especially today as we honor this prayer of thanksgiving at the beginning of the letter to talk about the second prong that Paul addresses when he talks about a life that pleases God. And that is this emphasis on love. Look again at verses 9 and 10 in chapter 4. Now about your love for one another, he says, we really don't even need to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, and yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Again, that reminder, we're talking about a young church, maybe eight, nine months, maybe a year at best, a young church. I am, I am blown away that Paul says to this young church where some of the believers have come from Jewish backgrounds, some were God-fearing Greeks, prominent women, and as 1 Thessalonians 1 would indicate, those who have been converted out of idolatry. It blows me away that Paul will say to this young church, you have become an incredible example in the holiness in your life, in the way that you're avoiding sexual immorality, and in the way that you are loving one another. Translated from a preacher's vantage point, it is Paul saying, I, I really don't even need to say anything more to you about it because you've been taught by God and you are practicing it. The only thing I would urge you to do is to do so more and more. Or me talking to a church that's been around for a long time and to believers who've been followers of Jesus for a long time where I could say, you know, church, I shouldn't have to be talking to you at all about sexual immorality because you understand what's holy and what's unholy. I shouldn't have to be talking to you about loving one another at all. And yet the reality is far too often we allow all of those challenges and temptations to overwhelm us. And so Paul says, let's talk about love. He says, you do love each other. In fact, reminiscent of chapter 1 where he says, you're a model to all the believers in Macedonia. But my question today would be, so what does that look like? What does it look like to truly be a people that are guided by love? And this is where I simply want you to fasten your seatbelts along with me and let's just listen to words from Scripture. And maybe we get a clue. From the lips of Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, so in everything... Do to others what you would have them do to you. Translated, treat others like you want to be treated. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Sound anything at all like Matthew 22? Love God, love your neighbor. Everything else hinges on these two. You treat others the way you want to be treated. You love others the way you would want to be loved. This sums up the law and the prophets. And by the way, Jesus didn't define the others. I think he's talking about all of the others. And so the question would be, are you demonstrating that kind of love? Are we as a body of believers demonstrating that kind of love? In fact, this same teacher, this guy that we know is Jesus, just a couple of chapters earlier in this same sermon says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? 
Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, the question is, do we have that kind of love? Do we treat others that way? And it's not just those that we love, those who are part of our group. Jesus will say, even those who are our enemies. I was sitting in a lunch gathering, a lunch meeting a couple of weeks ago, and the speaker was sharing with us the ways that we need to reach out and embrace and love others. And one of the quotes that he shared was, in light of the gospel, in light of the gospel, we are the kind of people that see hard places and broken people and we move towards them, not away. Doesn't matter who the broken person is, doesn't matter what the hard place is, if we understand what it means to honor the love that God calls us to, we move towards, not away from. Is that the kind of love that we practice? Paul put it this way in Ephesians 4, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you're sealed for the day of redemption. And so get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And by the way, there were no chapter breaks in the original text. And so we've got to keep reading. We can't break the train of thought. The very next words say, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Is that the kind of love that we practice? No unwholesome talk but rather words that build each other up. The kind of love that is not guided by bitterness and rage and anger and slander and malice, but that is guided by kindness and compassion and forgiveness. What Paul describes as the way of God, the way of Jesus, the way of love. Or in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. And he's given us this command, whoever, uh, anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister. And so a question, have, have we ever been guilty of what this writer talks about? Have we ever been guilty of hating a brother or a sister? Have we ever been guilty of saying, oh, I love God, and yet we don't love our brothers and sisters? Have we ever been guilty of saying, I love God, and yet we hate our brothers and sisters? John is extremely strong in his language. He says, if you are audacious enough to say, I love God, and yet you don't love one another, you are a liar. And I turn to this young church in Thessalonica. And Paul says, you have become a model because you love the family of God in the entire region. Back up one verse in 1 John chapter 4. The writer says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so, question, what's the opposite? of love. And you might respond by saying, well, the opposite of love is hatred. 
It is unforgiveness, it is bitterness, it is revenge, it is gossip, it's slander, the things that Paul talked about in Ephesians 4, and I would say you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. But let me also invite you to stay with me. What's the opposite of faith? And we might very quickly say the opposite of faith is unbelief, or the opposite of faith is things like doubt and worry and fear. And I think about those texts in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus on several occasions will say to the disciples, Oh, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Why do you doubt? Why do you fear? Why do you worry? The opposite of faith is all of those things. What I find fascinating, though, in 1 John 4 is that in this verse, John seems to be saying the opposite of love is fear. And so when we are led by fear rather than faith, even better, when we are led by fear rather than love, then just maybe God is not going to bless us. Rather, rather Paul is calling us to a life where we choose to love God, where we choose to trust God, where we choose to love others in the same way that God loved us and where we do not allow worry and fear and doubt to control us. Or as Paul would put it in Galatians chapter 5, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Now that's in a context where Paul's been talking about Jewish-Gentile tensions where there are some Jewish believers who are saying Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to follow Christ, in order to be a part of our group. And so Paul deals with all of that, but his bottom line punchline is the only thing that counts. And so I wonder when we see a text in Scripture that says the only thing that counts, if maybe we ought to pay attention. And Paul says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love unmistakably and inescapably at the center of the Christian's moment-by-moment -moment existence is love. It is love that gave us the world. It is love that sent Jesus into the world. It is love that Jesus hoped to create in us by His coming because, you see, God is love. Love longs to see suffering end. Love longs to see injustice end because, you see, love is built on trust. That's why Christianity has an obsession with faith and not law. Because, you see, love forgives. We know that from God Himself. Love is courageous. It believes that love itself is the greatest power in the universe. Love is patient. Love finds joy in giving. Love would rather die than quit loving. Love becomes more powerful than any problem, anytime, anywhere, even those problems that seem to be beyond human power. Love refuses to control anyone, rather love chooses to protect. Love believes in redemption. Love cherishes the entire world. Love notices even the sparrow and the lilies and the birds, everyone who's born of God loves. Everyone who loves shows that God is at work in them. Love is never satisfied with the past. It forgets what lies behind and presses on to greater love. Love costs but love will prevail no matter what because, you see, God is love. A life that pleases God, holy living, and love. In fact, 
the three-legged church, faith and love and hope. Pretty simple, isn't it? Faith and love and hope. Pretty simple. But maybe, just maybe, enough for us to work on for the rest of our lives. It's true for me. What about you? Let's stand and sing.